This is the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore. The bulk of our program today will have to do with the Cold War. We will have a few minutes with Paul Peralt, who is the town historian in the town of Malta in Saratoga County, New York, talking about the 1820 Great Awakening, a big religious revival that took place in the United States. But to talk about the Cold War, our guest is Duncan White, author of Cold Warriors, Writers Who Waged the Literary Cold War. Duncan White is a journalist, book reviewer, and an academic. He's Assistant Director of Studies in History and Literature at Harvard University in Cambridge, Massachusetts. What do you mean by the literary Cold War? So the Cold War, obviously, was a conflict between um, the West and the, and the East, the capitalist West and the communist East. And it was a, a remarkable conflict in that, you know, because of the both sides having nuclear weapons, conventional warfare was understandably problematic. The consequences would have been um, devastating. Um, so a lot of the, the war was fought indirectly, either through espionage or in what I look at, through cultural propaganda, through means of trying to undermine um, the enemy regime through the use of ideas, through the use of books as weapons. Hmm. Um, you talk about many, many authors. Let me ask you first, as we were testing, doing a sound check, you use this man's name. Uh, tell us about George Orwell, famous uh, British author, right? Uh, how did he get involved in this Cold War? Well, George Orwell um, was an idealistic um, man of the left in the 1930s who went to, the, to, uh, to fight the fascists in the Spanish Civil War. But what he saw there, actually, on, on uh, the, the side of the left was um, agents of um, the Soviet Union um, and, and of Stalin that chilled him to the bone. He really feared that um, if uh, uh, Stalin's uh, power went unchecked, we would see an, uh, a kind of authoritarian regime uh, widening its circle of influence in the world. Um, the problem was for him is, how do you write about this? Because the Spanish Civil War was a complicated struggle with many factions. So he had the idea of telling a children's story, a children's story that would, by analogy, uh, warn of the authoritarian um, strain within the Soviet Union. And that book was obviously Animal Farm. And you, you write that the, the Russians or the Soviets, the KGB, tried to prohibit the publication of Animal Farm? Yes, it's really interesting. So Animal Farm was um, written in, during the course of the early years of the Second World War. And when Orwell tried to have it published, it kept getting rejected, even sometimes in rather fishy circumstances. Well, we now know that um, an agent of uh, uh, the, the British uh, War Information Ministry was actually also working for the Soviet Union. And because this work was so critical of Stalin and so critical of Soviet communism, um, he had encouraged, nudged uh, uh, publishers not to publish this book, claiming that it would be against uh, the interests of uh, the British government in their war effort, because, of course, they were still allied with the Soviet Union at that stage in the fight with uh, Nazi Germany. Mm. My father came from Torrington, England, so Duncan White, it sounds to me you're not really f from around here. Where are you from? <laughs> yeah, no, you're very perceptive. I'm from um, London in the United Kingdom. Um, I uh, uh, moved to the United States in 
in 2012 and have, have lived in Massachusetts ever since. And you're Assistant Director of Studies in History and Literature at Harvard? Yes, that's correct. What does that mean? Well, that means I help run the, the, the program, the History and Literature program for undergraduates at Harvard. It's a, a kind of program in which we ask students to look at um, culture and history together. Um, something of the ethos of my book, in fact, thinking about how um, books, films, and uh, other cultural products can mm-hmm. tell us about history and also about how history shaped those things. Mm. Well, let me ask you about another uh, figure in history, this one American, uh, Mary McCarthy. How does she uh, enter your book, or what, did, what was her story so far as the Cold War is concerned? Well, Mary McCarthy is a fascinating figure because she um, was a bit like Orwell, a, 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 a person of the left in, in the 1930s who became disenchanted by um, Soviet communism. In her case, she um, was a supporter of Trotsky, and she saw through the, the Moscow show trial. She always had a very sharp eye for that. Um, and she became a big champion of something called the non-communist left, who were a group of intellectuals that believed in sort of progressive causes, but were opposed to um, the Soviet Union and communism. And these were the people that actually were secretly funded by the CIA, given um, conferences. Their works were circulated in magazines that were were actually in some cases founded by um, CIA, uh, intelligence mm-hmm. operations. Um, and then she went on actually to um, become a major critic of the U.S., in its uh, interventions in Vietnam. So she sort of, having been a, a staunch critic of the Soviet Union, she then became a critic of American Cold War foreign policy and, and reported from the front lines there herself. In, in fact, didn't she go to Hanoi during the war? She, she did indeed. She went, she was one of the first American journalists to go to North Vietnam um, during the conflict, and she reported from there in dispatches that are fascinating to look at as she struggles to deal with her own kind of partisan opposition to American involvement, but also the sort of the ample evidence that the, the North Vietnamese conduct was hardly as, as rosy as she would have hoped. And, and in many ways, she was actually um, sucked in by some of the propaganda um, that she saw up there. And, and so uh, that, that's a fascinating episode in my book in which she's, she really struggles with that. And so many of the, the writers were sort of caught in that, in that mm-hmm. between these two forces in the Cold War. Um, back in the time when she was writing, and you said that uh, there's evidence that the CIA was promoting her and, and, and other writers uh, to get a wider audience, did she know that? Most writers did not. The question with Mary McCarthy is more interesting because her husband worked for the State Department, so she may have known earlier than others. Um, and there are hints in her correspondence that she might have known that something was going on. But for the most part, these writers were relatively oblivious. I mean, you could argue that they didn't look particularly at hard at where some of the money was coming from for some of these junk hits and some of these uh, uh, magazines being sustained by mysterious means. But no, they did not know that, that, that you know, as was later revealed, that the, the hidden hand of the CIA was at work. Let's talk about the other side, the Soviet side. How did the Soviets... Um which now we call the Russians, treat uh, dissident writers uh, such as Boris Pasternak, Alexander Solzhenitsyn? <laughs> well, very ruthlessly. Um, basically, in, in when we, the mid-1930s, the period we're talking about when 
Orwell and McCarthy were so um, uh, uh, optimistic about the future of, of the left. In, in Russia, there was tremendous repression happening, the Great Terror, and many writers were crushed, um, sent to the camps, executed. Um, and the legacy of that through the whole Cold War was one of repression in which freedom of speech was stymied, and, and writers who failed to conform to the party line were punished. Pasternak was one, his novel Dr. Zhivago, um, uh, he was smuggled out to the West and, and created a huge scandal in Moscow. Um, and he was forced to, to uh, reject the Nobel Prize when it was awarded to him in '58. Um, and in Solzhenitsyn, who wrote about uh, uh, the Gulag archipelago, as he called it, the network of labor camps of which he had been uh, a prisoner um, in uh, the, the period after the Second World War, he um, wrote this epic uh, account of the history of this labor camp system, which he managed to successfully smuggle out to the West and which went off like a bomb when it was published. One author I, I want to get in because it deals in part with the topic that I write about my local history of all things, because I come from the hometown of uh, the American actor and producer Kirk Douglas. Um, what about Howard Fast? He was known, for some years, he was actually a member of the American Communist Party, wasn't he? He was, you know, one of the most famous communists in America. And he was also one of the best-selling novelists in America at the same time. He was this interesting conundrum. So he, he, his books sold extremely well, but he began to be chased by... Um, the House and American Activities Committee and, and Joe McCarthy um, during the Red Scare. And understandably so, he was an outspoken communist. Um, and when he tried to publish Spartacus, which Kirk Douglas would later um, uh, star in, uh, in the, the, the Hollywood production of, um, he found no publisher would take him, despite his incredible track record of, uh, of selling books by the tens of million. Um, and he realized that he'd been sort of unofficially blacklisted. Um, so he published it himself. It's one of the ironies that that uh, his communism kind of made him into an entrepreneur. Made him I know, isn't that something? But and and he was one of those who, when called before the Washington um, House committees, he would not um, name names. He would not uh, throw his uh, colleagues under the bus. Yeah, he went to prison for it. He went to prison for it. He was. Um, I mean, I believe his his. Uh, opinions were wrong-headed and so actually he came to believe but he certainly had guts and he stood up to the washington establishment and and went to prison for his beliefs and in fact it was while in prison that he had the idea to write spartacus you know a story about a slave rebellion about the working classes the underclasses rising up to defeat the uh, their imperial masters so, so there is a certain like left-wing spin to spartacus oh <laughs> yes exactly um, you know, this was something that uh, Fast specialized in, was writing these books that, that sort of took a, uh, a kind of left-wing approach to, to, to history. Although the Spartacus myth had been one that had, 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 uh, was held very dearly by um, uh, radicals on the left. You know, in, in Germany, the, 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 the radical left took the name the Spartacus Bund, you know, in honor of this idea mm -hmm. of a, a slave rebellion. And when the movie was made, and I believe Kirk Douglas was also producer of the movie in addition to starring in it, um, th they hired Dalton Trumbo, who had also who had been blacklisted as screenwriter, but apparently a fast, I, I don't know, Kirk Douglas gets a lot of credit for that, and d did fast sort of think that Kirk got too much credit? 
Yeah, he was a little bitter about that experience, Howard Fast. I mean, Howard Fast was many things. He also had quite a considerable ego. And he uh, felt that um, he should have been given more credit for the way that movie turned out. Um, and he also felt that Douglas took a little too much credit for um, breaking the blacklist. I mean, uh, you know, from the, the distance of historical perspective, it's true that there were other movies that, that helped break the blacklist and that all films are collaborative projects. But, you know, there, there's no doubt that Kirk Douglas deserves credit for, for taking the stand that he did. And, and uh, you know, that, that film really did draw a line under a fairly ugly... Um, period in, in American history. Speaking of ugly incidents, you write about an incident I'd never heard of involving Howard Fast. Um, maybe not exactly a riot, but something like that in Peekskill, New York, when they uh, Fast and, and others on the left brought in Howard Robeson, I think, to sing. He's a famous opera singer, but he also uh, moved, well, he not also, but he moved to this uh, Soviet Union, and uh, there were anti-Robeson uh, demonstrators, and they did this twice, and there was a, it was quite a violent scene. It was indeed, yeah. There was, um, so we think of Fast as a communist, but he was also um, a civil rights activist, and, you know, a very laudable one of that. And, and you have to remember at this period, you know, we had Jim Crow in the United States, and um, the Soviet Union... Um, scored a lot of propaganda points in pointing out that, that America was an, an, an unequal society at this moment in its history. So, um, yes, the Robeson concert, the Paul Robeson concert, he was the most famous African-American actor and singer uh, in the world at the time, and, and they decided to um, stage this concert in Peekskill, and, and, yeah, a mob was waiting for them. And, you know, these... these um, uh, 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 this concert turned into a violent riot in which, I mean, as I say in the book, somebody witnessed fast with a Coke bottle in each hand wading into the fight. But, you know, these were the, the battles that were being fought. This was what was at stake in this, this febrile moment in American history. One uh, phrase that um, you use, I believe it comes from Vaclav Havel, who was a Czech playwright and became president of that country when it was no longer part of the Soviet sphere, there's something called the issue of complicity. Can you explain that? Yeah, well, one of the issues that a writer had was, you know, if you are, for example, criticizing the uh, Soviet Union, does that make you complicit in the behavior of, let's say, the foreign policy of Britain or the United States? Um, if you are a, a dissident, um, are you also by... Uh, uh, extension um, endorsing the uh, the opposition. So if you dissent against the United States, are you supporting the Soviet Union? If you dissent against the Soviet Union, does that mean you support the United States? And all writers face this problem, trying to retain their autonomy, their individuality, their freedom um, without being co-opted. So, you know, you do see someone like Pasternak, who uh, was a, a critic of the Soviet Union, when his work made it out into the West, the CIA did seize upon it and did smuggle editions back into the Soviet Union in Ru um, uh, Russian language editions, you know, illegally back into the Soviet Union to try and sort of disrupt uh, 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 that country. So it was hard not to become complicit in one way or another. And another uh, author, the uh, Jean Le Carré, the um, 
mystery writer who was a British uh, spy, wasn't he? And uh, he's quite a, an interesting character. Oh, he's a fascinating character, yes. He was uh, um, uh, an agent, first with MI5, which is sort of analogous to the FBI, and then with MI6, analogous to the CIA. He was a, a spy who worked in um, uh, Germany during the Cold War. He was actually there witnessing firsthand as the as the, the Berlin Wall went up in 1961. Um, and he wrote about uh, some of those experiences um, and in, in this novel, The Spy Who Came In From The Cold, which made him an overnight success and rich enough to actually go and become a full-time writer. And he became one of our uh, most compelling chroniclers of the Cold War, about the ethical murkiness of the Cold War, the, the connection between espionage and everyday life that, that became a fixture of the Cold mm. War. And he's still with us, and I think a, a new book is on the way this really? fall, and I'll be sure to be reading it. It'll be fascinating, no doubt. Well, it seems like he's kind of disillusioned now about the cause, or, or not so. Oh, I think he w there was always a degree with him of being uh, uh, disillusioned with the, the, the way that the Cold War was prosecuted. Um, even from his earliest books, he's very skeptical about um, the, 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 the loftier claims that are made in the West. I mean, he was a ferocious critic of, of um, communist totalitarianism, but he also um, repeatedly called out um, the, the hypocrisies of, of, of his own side, too. You tell one story at the beginning where I think it's the Americans are taking balloons and depositing books in uh, behind the Iron Curtain, you know, with the, with the prevailing winds. I forgot whose books were they. <laughs> that was actually Animal Farm. Yeah, there was a there was a group that actually was funded by the CIA that produced these special lightweight editions of Animal Farm. It's not a long book anyway, but they made it as light as possible so that they could pack as many in uh, into one package as, as they could, and then yes, used weather balloons to float them in when the winds were right over the border into Poland, presumably with the hope that these these books would rain down upon the Polish populace and that people would, would pick them up and read them and start to question uh, uh, the, the communist ideology that they've been indoctrinated with. The, the, Duncan White is with us, author of Cold Warriors. It, does this kind of thing still go on today? I mean, this kind of espionage or, or advocacy of... Uh, of journal or of, of literature? I don't think so. Not in not in anywhere near the same degree. I think what you do see today is the continued repression of writers by authoritarian regimes. Um, only this month, Turkey withdrew some three hundred thousand books from schools and libraries and destroyed them. Uh, there are writers routinely being repressed in in China and many many other countries around the world. So. Writers still have the power to scare regimes and to, to force them into these kind of uh, repressive actions. But these days with the Internet, and, and you know, it was television, but now the Internet, we see um, you know, state propaganda um, using these, these means to get directly to people on, on a much larger scale than they could in the Cold War using these technologies, troll farms, misinformation online, um, the, the circulation of false news. Um, it's uh, yeah. It, we live in interesting times, and these um, these methods, I think, we're on, are only going to become more sinister and complex in the coming years. Duncan White, thank you very much. Oh, thank you very much for having me on. It was a pleasure. You bet.
You're listening to The Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore. We have a GoFundMe campaign underway for the year 2019 so that we can keep in operation with our regular podcasts about history. You can go to this website, gofundme.com forward slash 2019-the-historians, and uh, the website will help you from there on. And it's quite easy to donate online, and we hope you do. If you'd rather send a check in the mail, make the check out to me, Bob Cudmore, and send it to Bob Cudmore at 125 Horstman Drive in Scotia, New York. And thank you very much. We continue on the Historian's Podcast uh, with another story from local history from Paul Peralt, who is historian in the town of Malta in Saratoga County, New York. Uh, Paul is uh, talking with us this time about the Great Awakening, an 1820 religious revival. Hello, this is Paul Peralt, town of Malta historian. As we all know, the first European settlers of the New England colonies were seekers after religious freedom. They risked their lives, futures, and fortunes for their beliefs. Most were followers of John Calvin, either Presbyterian or Congregationalist. He preached a strict, non-emotional understanding of God's will. Services were mostly long lectures from the pulpit, with no singing and little participation from the congregation. For the first few generations, this religious fervor guided and drove not only their religious decisions, but what we would today call secular and or government decisions. These early generations were followed by people who came for a variety of reasons, mostly to gain a better life here on earth. Although very religious from our modern standards, these newcomers paled in comparison with the earlier groups. As they moved inland from the coast, their time, efforts, and thoughts appeared more focused on carving out farms from the forest. They were also underserved by the clergy, who, after being trained in Harvard and Yale, rarely wished to live amongst the unwashed masses on the frontier. Starting in the 1730s, a movement called the Great Awakening, an evangelical and revitalization movement, swept throughout the colonies, leaving a permanent impact on American Protestantism. The Great Awakening made Christianity intensively personal to the average person by fostering a deep sense of spiritual conviction and redemption, and by encouraging introspection and a commitment to a new standard of personal morality. While the Great Awakening was very effective in reviving religion, the emotions burned out quickly after the first generation, and there was much backsliding. So in the 1820s, conditions were ripe for what became the second Great Awakening. They were particularly ripe in Malta. A moral wild and a waste place were amongst the terms used by churchmen of the time to describe Malta in the early 19th century. But if you think that is bad... Wait till you hear what they said about Stillwater. Religious life in Malta at the time was described as a very small Methodist church in one corner of the town and two or three of God's children in another corner. There was neither piety nor prayer 
nor means of grace, nor desire of salvation. Redemption, however, came to Malta in 1820 in the person of Reverend Isabel Nettleton, a well-known revivalist from Connecticut. Few have heard of Nettleton today, but he was the Billy Graham of the 1820s, his name familiar in every New England household. It has been estimated that more than 30,000 converts responded to his call. In the summer of 1819, Nettleton's ministry shifted from Connecticut to the Saratoga area. Although he came here for a period in rest and to restore his failing health, local ministers pressed him into service. A Mr. Hunter from Malta was credited with persuading him for the need to come to Malta. Responding to this call, Nettleton preached to 1,400 people in Malta. Now, to put that in perspective, the population of the town in 1820 was 1,518. Although it's reasonable to assume that most of the crowd were from Malta, not all were. People were known to have been attracted from Stillwater, Galway, Boston, and Saratoga. It was estimated that he was responsible for over 600 converts during the seven months he spent in Saratoga County before moving on to Union College in Schenectady, where he led another successful revival with the assistance of Dr. Knott, the famous president of that college. In fact, Malta was the center of the revival, which spread throughout the county. Ministers came to Malta to see what was going on. What they saw so impressed them that they they carried the revival spirit back with them to their own towns and villages. So the revival flourished in, in the city of Saratoga, Stillwater, Boston and Galway, Charlton, Schenectady and Amsterdam, and many other small places. And it was not a moment too soon for those sinners in Stillwater, described as boatmen, tipplers, tavern haunters, gamblers, infidels, and atheists. What was going on in Stillwater? Well, in 1817, the state had begun digging both the Erie and the Champlain canals, and the latter passed through the town of Stillwater. It attracted a rough crowd of workers, mostly Irish and Catholic immigrants, to that area that had known few, if any, prior to that time. The revival was so significant that the Albany Presbytery appointed a special committee to investigate the matter. And it stated in part, from the very commencement of his labors, the work of the Lord's Spirit became more powerful and rapidly progressive. It was but a little while until weeping and anxious distress were found in almost every house. The inhabitation of sin, the families of discord, the haunts of intemperance, the stronghold of error, the retreat of pride, and the entrenchment of self-righteousness were all equally penetrated by the power of the Holy Ghost. Religion had come to Malta. This is Bob Cudmore. We're going to end this edition of the Historian's Podcast with a brief excerpt from Duncan White's book, Cold Warriors, Writers Who Waged the Literary Cold War. He's writing about how the Central Intelligence Agency launched a secret weapon into communist territory from West Germany. Ten-foot balloons armed with their payload, waiting for favorable winds, he wrote. They then watched as the balloons were carried deep behind the Iron Curtain, where they would eventually 
disgorge their contents. Their contents were copies of George Orwell's Animal Farm. At the height of the Cold War, he wrote, the CIA made copies of George Orwell's Animal Farm rain down from the communist sky. This has been the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore.